So it is just really good uh, to be with you all today. Um, I have been in this role of church strengthening for a little bit over a year, and uh, I was just kind of minding my own business as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 25 years in three different churches, all in supporting roles. Uh, I've never been a lead pastor, um, but uh, always helping make the senior pastor look good. That's kind of have, has been my role, sometimes to more success than others. And, uh, but I've done everything. Uh, I've, I've been a worship pastor, a children's pastor. I've, I've, I've done small group ministry. I've, I was an intern in youth ministry. And, and so on and on and on, and, and I, I don't say that to say, man, you know, aren't you amazing? Because I'm not. But um, it has given me an opportunity to do so much in the church that when I talk to pastors today, I can say, you know, I don't exactly know exactly where you are right now, but I'm pretty sure I've been in the general vicinity. And it, and it gives me an ability to speak uh, into pastors' lives and to understand what's going on with them a little bit and to help encourage them. And I was so worried when I, when I left being a pastor to take this job. Man, I love people. And I'm, I'm like a people person off the chart. And uh, man, I don't have a congregation anymore. How's that, what's that going to feel like? Well, our pastors have become my congregation and uh, I, I, man, we've got great pastors in Convergent in America, and you have great pastors here in this church. And uh, um, so it's just a privilege for me uh, to be a part of what I get to do. I, when, when I was thinking about this job, it reminded me, uh, I, I live in the Chicago area, and my prayer my whole life was, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go, just as long as it's not Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I, I hated Chicago, the traffic, the taxes, the politics, I mean, just you name it, but the food <laughs> is unbelievable. Um, but uh, I've actually loved it. Uh, I've loved being in the Chicago area, um, and, uh, and my wife and I are, are loving just this new adventure. We are empty nesters, and one of the things that we said was, you know, God, let's just do something stupid for the kingdom. And uh, this is pretty stupid for the kingdom. And uh, it's great. Um, so I've been married. It'll be 28 years in, a, in two weeks. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, um, and so it's amazing. She still wants to be with me. She's actually currently, today she's coming home. Uh, she and my daughter, Kira, she, uh, my daughter graduated from college a year ago and is a teacher, a music teacher in uh, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin area, um, but uh, her graduation present had to get moved because we were moving last summer, basically, and uh, so they are returning from London today. They spent the week together, just a mother-daughter trip to London, and uh, so that's been really cool. I also have a son, Taylor, my eldest, and uh, he is married uh, to his wife, Emily. They live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and uh, we are so grateful for Emily um, because we were so glad when he left our house. <laughs> and she, like, wants to live with him every day, and we can't quite believe it. Uh, but uh, I'm so grateful. Both of my kids are walking with Jesus, and, and as is my daughter-in-law as well, who's really my kid now too, and, and uh, we're just really blessed and, uh, and grateful. So 
so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I, 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 I am about church strengthening. Uh, there is a statistic in America that 80% of churches are either plateaued or declining. And, and actually, another statistic says 95% of churches are growing slower than their communities. And uh, man, I don't like that stat. And so uh, my thing is, my, my, my saying is, what if we could flip that script? What if in Convergem in America, 80 to 85% of our churches were fruitful, healthy, multiplying congregations? And so that drives me. And then the other thing is, I don't want any pastor to lead alone. If you want to lead alone, that's fine, but it's not going to be because we don't have that opportunity for us to connect together. We have this sort of pithy statement in Converge that says we're better together. Uh, I, I happen to believe that, and uh, that, that really drives me, and, and uh, so it really is a joy uh, to, to do what I get to do. I grew up uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, uh, and, and yes, that is what that means. Uh, you can take the boy out of Green Bay, but you can't take the Green Bay out of the boy. And uh, so I bleed green and gold. I am a Green Bay Packers fan. And so um, you guys, thank, thank you very much for that. Wow. I, I see those hands and I see those downward thumbs. And, and quite frankly, it's a little disturbing. Uh, but... Uh, um, well, I mean, you can, I mean, no offense, but you guys could be on the Green Bay bandwagon now, you know, but, uh, um, but anyway, as I begin this morning, I think because I'm a Packer fan, I think it's only appropriate that I begin with an illustration from the greatest football team of all times, the Green Bay Packers, right? So the date was July 1961. And the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. And the previous season had ended with a heartbreaking defeat as the Packers squandered a lead late in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to, coincidentally, the Philadelphia Eagles, who just won the Super Bowl. The players had been thinking about this brutal loss for the entire offseason, and now finally training camp had arrived, and it was time to get to work. They were eager to get their game to the next level and start working on the details that would help them to win a championship. And their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a, had a different idea. And he began with the most elemental statement of all. He said, gentlemen, he said, holding a football in his right hand, this is a football. I mean, think of it. Lombardi was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize that their sport could offer. And yet he started from the beginning. And he didn't stop there. He began to focus on the fundamentals throughout training camp. And, and so they opened up the playbook and they started from page one. At some point, Max McGee, the Packers Pro Bowl wide receiver, joked, uh, Coach, could you just slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. And Lombardi just chuckled but continued his obsession with the basics all the same. And here's what happened. His team would become the best in the league in the tasks that everyone else took for granted. And six months later, the Green Bay Packers got back to the NFL championship and beat the New York Giants 37 to nothing. I mean, it seems absurd, doesn't it, that a coach would take experts and get them back to the fundamentals. 
But Lombardi knew something that was really important. He knew that if he didn't repeat those fundamentals to his guys, they would be prone to forget them and their execution would be lacking. Well, God is the ultimate coach. And he wants to make sure that his team never forgets the fundamentals too. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, he instructs the Israelites with these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Why did God want them to do all of this with just this one statement? Well, he says in verse 10 and following uh, that God wanted to make sure that they constantly knew that he alone was the source of every good thing that they would experience. And without those constant reminders, he would know that his people would tend to forget him. And guess what? He was right. Over and over, we see in scripture how God's people would forget the fundamentals. They would become apathetic in their relationship with God, and they would ultimately fall away from him. But God, he's so amazing, his unconditional love would always restore his people, but not without consequences. He disciplined his people because he wanted them to know that it was far better for them if they would just follow him in the first place. Well, God has fundamentals for us today as well, and it's called the gospel, the good news of the life and ministry of Jesus and how salvation is a gift from him alone. And like the Israelites, we too need to repeat our fundamentals because we too forget, and just as we heard earlier, we are prone to wander, we're prone to leave the God that we love. And so too often, however, we tend to think of the gospel as something that is just for rookies, all right? It's just for the handbook for coming to Christ as Savior and Lord, and then once that happens, then we kind of jettison the gospel because now it's important for us to become mature and learn the more complicated plays, if you will. But instead, those of us who claim the name of Jesus need to repeat the gospel regularly. I'd argue we need to repeat it every single day because just like the Israelites, we can forget how good the good news really is. And furthermore, what we tend to do is we tend to confine the gospel to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four books actually called the Gospels are super important because they do give the good news of the story of Jesus' life, his birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection, and we need to read those four books. But God's plan of redeeming people for himself, the good news, wasn't just simply this sort of last-minute decision that God made 2,000 years ago or some abrupt change in God's direction. It was actually God's redemptive plan, his good news from the very beginning. So the Bible, 
The entire Bible is the complete story of the good news of God, redeeming man from his sin. From Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, Jesus is the gospel, and we need to be reminded of it every day. So this morning, we're going to go through the playbook. We're going to go through the Bible so that we might see again this plan of salvation through Jesus that's woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to go through every page of the Bible. We'll be here for weeks. But we're going to give an overview of God's plan to redeem his people and to see the powerful reality that we actually, you and I, were included in God's plan from the very beginning. And so my prayer for us is that we might be reminded again in a fresh way the power of this book, the Word of God, that it is powerful, it is effective, it is in fact in its entirety the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So with that thought in mind, let's just pray as as we begin. Lord, uh, I thank you for today. I thank you for being with these friends here at West Hills. And Lord, even as I say the word friends, that's not really accurate because we are more than friends. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, that's an amazing thing to be a part of your family with your people. Lord, I just pray as we open up your word today, as we reflect on the good news of Jesus, that you would do something in our hearts that would be different Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take away any scales from our eyes that would keep us from seeing the truth of who you are and the amazing plan that you have for us. And I do, I just pray that we would be different today. And so, Holy Spirit, again, you have permission as we continue to worship you this morning uh, to do what you need to do in our lives so that we might become more like Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first verse of the first chapter of the Bible starts out this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We know as we keep reading that God continues to create. He creates the water, the sky, the land, the trees, the fruit, the sun, the stars, the fish, the birds, wild animals, livestock, all the creatures that move around along the ground. For five days, he created everything that we can see and even things that we will never see. And each thing he created pleased him, and he called them all good. We're told in the Gospel of John chapter 1 that Jesus himself was present during creation and he even participated in creation. In the beginning, it says, was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So then on the sixth day of creation, after he had created all this, God said, Let us make man in our image 
in our likeness. Do you see that? In the image and likeness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It was upon creating man that he was no longer simply pleased, saying that it was good. Now he was very pleased. And he said that it was very good. And God loved man, and God gave man dominion, that is authority, over all he had created. He gave him every fruit and every plant to eat from. He blessed man, and he would walk with man in uninterrupted relationship and fellowship. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just walking alongside with God in perfect, in perfection, without fear, without any anxiety, just in perfect relationship with God? That's what Adam and Eve got to do. But by the third chapter of the Bible, I mean only like two pages in to this book, man decided that all the perfection, all the blessings that God had given was not enough. Because man wanted to be like God. And so he disobeyed God by eating from the one tree which he specifically forbade. And because of this one act of disobedience, this one act of sin, well, God disciplined man. It says that man was cursed by being sent away from the garden. The earth would no longer be perfect, but it would create hard work and unfruitful work being difficult to deal with. There'd be pain in childbirth. There'd be difficulty in personal relationships. And there would now be this recognized distance from God because of this sin. But here's the thing. Instead of leaving man, which he had every right to do, God shows his love to him by clothing him, by caring for him, by making him fruitful, by multiplying him. Because God's gospel plan is already unfolding. Do you see it? Man sins and God redeems. Well, man pays back God's love and kindness by continuing to sin. Murder is introduced in the fourth chapter, and by the sixth chapter of the Bible, sin is rampant, and the Lord sees how great man's wickedness on the earth has become. The Bible says that every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, there just was nothing good in man at this time. So he decides, you know what? I'm just going to start over. This isn't working right now, so I'm just going to start over. I'm going to wipe man off the face of the earth. But even then, in his mercy, he saves a remnant in a man named Noah and his family and a portion of all the animals that he created. Because again, it's the gospel. Man sins and God redeems. God tells a man named Abram that he's going to make him the father of a great nation. They're going to be God's people, his chosen nation. He's going to bless them with their very own land that he's going to give to them. And God miraculously rescues his people from captivity in Egypt through a man named Moses and performs all sorts of miracles to prove his presence with them. And his very presence is actually with them visibly in a cloud by day and fire by night. I mean, again, imagine living with the very manifest presence of God every day. That's what 
the Israelites got to do. Man repays this amazing gift from God by grumbling at his provisions, longing for their days of slavery in Egypt, and ultimately serving other gods. So God punishes man for his disobedience, but he gives him a way to atone for this sin by offering this sort of sacrificial system using uh, uh, animals without defect as sin offerings. This sets the stage even further for the gospel that's coming, the coming redemption through Jesus. Because again, man sins and God redeems. Well, God gives his people the promised land because he always is faithful to his promises. He destroys foreign armies in ways that only he can take the credit for. I mean, there's no other way to explain, except for God, how a small nation could overpower armies much greater than them. Well, man repays God by marrying foreign women, taking on their gods, and forgetting Yahweh. So God judges man for his disobedience by making these other nations a thorn, a problem to them. Man confesses his sin, and God sends judges to restore the worship and relationship his people had with him from the beginning. Because again, are you getting the theme? Man sins, and God redeems. Well, man decides, well, this is all great, but I don't think that God's sovereign rule is enough for us anymore because man wants a king like every other nation. So God gives them a king, but because these kings are not God, they're imperfect people, man continues to fall back into this pattern of sin and idolatry of all kinds. So God sends prophets he sends prophets to call the people to repentance, and they point to a Messiah that is going to bring ultimate peace and salvation. The gospel continues to unfold because God never leaves his people. But for now, God decides that uh, because of their idolatry and, and because of their transgressions, that his people are going to need to become captives to other nations. They're no longer going to be their own people. And even in that, God still saves a remnant of his people that are able to be left behind in Israel. Because again, the good news throughout the Bible is God sins, man redeems. Well, after generations of no new revelation from God, no new speaking from God, that is, God decides to send another redeemer to redeem his people again. But this time, it's not going to be a patriarch like Abram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not going to be a deliverer like Moses. It won't be a judge like Samson. It's not going to be a king like David. It's not going to be a prophet like Isaiah. This time, the Redeemer is going to be God himself, the second member of the Trinity who was with God in the creation of the world, who was with God when God said, let us create man in our image. The perfect son of God would be the savior of the world. The word became flesh. The savior would be like none other because he was gonna be the perfect Adam. He was gonna be the perfect Abraham, the perfect Moses, the perfect David. God would become man to redeem man because man sins and God redeems. But here's a catch. Because God is holy, he demands a sacrifice for sin. 
We've seen this pattern from the beginning of Scripture. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. Someone has to die. Either we die for our sin or a substitute has to die. But now, the substitute is no longer going to be an unblemished animal, which must be offered repeatedly for these repeated sins of man. This time, his perfect, unblemished, sinless son, Jesus, will be a once and for all atoning and substitutionary sacrifice. The amazing thing is Jesus agrees to leave the perfection of heaven that he had experienced for all of eternity to become flesh with all of its weaknesses, with all of its limitations, so he could die for rebellious and sinful people whom he loves. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, You see, at just the right time when we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man sins and God redeems. It was at the cross that the perfect died for the imperfect. It was the death of the holy for the unholy, the death of God for man. I've been asked and even thought this myself. I mean, how could the Jewish people have missed all of this? Have you ever thought that before? I mean, with so much history of God redeeming his people, how could they have missed it? Choosing instead to crucify Jesus. In three years of ministry, Jesus performed at least 37 different miracles. He turned water into wine. He provided uh, fish and bread to feed thousands. He healed sick people. He cast out demons. He even raised people from the dead. Even upon his arrest, his captors watched him reattach an ear of a soldier that one of his disciples had cut off. I mean, really, how in the world could they have missed it? Some Bible scholars suggest that there are more than 300 prophetic scriptures completed in the life of Christ. That means that hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophets talked about him coming. Jesus was the plan from the beginning. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would spend a season in Egypt. He'd be a Nazarene. He'd be betrayed. He would be spat upon. He'd be crucified with criminals. And the list just goes on and on and on. And you just have to say, how in the world could they have missed it? John 12, 37 through 40 says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Here's here's what that means. They missed it because God had a plan. And that plan includes you and me. But we know that the cross is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the plan. 
Because after three days in the biggest miracle of all, Jesus rises from the dead. The stone is rolled away from the tomb and death and sin is forever conquered. And just as Adam's one sin brought condemnation for all of us, Christ's one act of love brings life forever for all who believe. And after showing himself to hundreds of people over several days, the risen Jesus was ascended to heaven where he was and he is glorified. The lamb that was slain is now the lion of Judah reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. And that brings us to the end of the Bible. We're told that one day, The Bible says that that day may even be this day. (laughs) King Jesus will return to establish his kingdom forever and ever. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth uh, without sin, without death, uh, without sickness and pain and poverty. And once and for all, he defeats Satan and all his demons because man sins and God redeems. So today, we have this book, the Bible, God's full plan of redemption in all of its fullness. And you know, a third of the world claims some belief that Jesus is who he said he is. Most of us who sit here this morning uh, believe that Jesus is who he said he is. But if it's true... If Jesus really is who he is, why is it that even some of us this morning, even as you hear and say yes to what you're hearing, still want to live our own lives? We still don't think that God is enough. Or we still think that there must somehow be a better way. Maybe we think that we're not good enough. Or maybe we think we're just good enough. Maybe there's still some evidence that we need to see to believe, or maybe we just don't think at the end of the day, this is all great and everything, but it just doesn't really make a difference in how I live my life. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I mean, the evidence is clear. The difference it makes is clear. God has had a plan to redeem his people from the very beginning. And all along, his plan has been Jesus. He loves us. I want you to know this morning, he loves you. So what will you do with his plan? Will you continue to live in rebellion? Will you continue to reject the truth of Christ? Will you continue to investigate other roads that you think are going to lead you to redemption? Hebrews chapter 3 says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 
Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Today is the only day that we are guaranteed. Today is the day for you to accept the gospel of Jesus. Now, I assume that most of us here this morning have accepted the truth of the gospel. So for us, my question is this. Is it still life-giving? Is it still the best news ever? Is the truth of the gospel changing the way that we live each day? Or are you instead prone to wander, forgetting its power? Maybe most importantly, I think, if you say yes to all of that, yes, it's the best news ever. Yes, it changes the way that I live my life every day. Well, then are you sharing it with people who do not know the gospel of Jesus? And here's a scary thing. Do we even know, do we even have people that we rub shoulders with in our daily lives with whom we can even share the gospel? Maybe the most convicting passage to me in all of scripture is from Romans 10, 13 and following. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And I love that. Isn't that great? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes. Well, how then can they call in the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You and me are the ones who are the good news, the beautiful feet sharing the good news of Jesus. We are the sent out ones from this place to share the good news from this book about Jesus. I came across a website not too long ago. It's called Arda, A-R-D-A. And, and, it, and the website is actually thearda.com. And on that website, you can go to a, a little spot there where you can put in your zip code or the name of your city, and you can discover the religious makeup of the people that are in your particular part of the world. And uh, interestingly enough, in St. Louis, specifically St. Louis County, which if I'm not mistaken is your county, uh, there are 483,000 unclaimed people. What that means is there are 483,000 people in this county who don't have any religious affiliation at all. And that's not even just Christian affiliation. That's Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, all, all sorts of religions. There are 483,000 people in this county who say, I don't have any religious connection at all. So if you wonder if the harvest is white in St. Louis County, I'm telling you what, it is way white. <laughs> 483,000 people in your sphere of influence at West Hills Church. Brothers and sisters, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach it to ourselves to remind ourselves from what we have been saved from. And we need to preach it to ourselves so that we might share it with those that are in our sphere of influence right now. You have people right now in that 483,000 people in this county that you can be sharing the good news of Jesus with. Because I'm telling you, it is the greatest news ever. I mean, it's changed everything for me. I'm not perfect. 
being alive, all you got to do is be around me for five minutes and you can see how not perfect I am. As a matter of fact, I call myself a Romans 7 guy trying to live a Romans 8 life. Romans 7 talks all about, I do the things I shouldn't do, I don't do the things I should do. My heart says I want to follow Christ, but there's this other battle waging within me, this sin thing, and, and Paul says, man, I am just a wretched man. Who's going to save me from all of this? I say, man, I am that guy. And, and some people would say, that's Paul pre-conversion. Man, I hope not, because I'm that guy today. I don't do the things I should. I do the things I shouldn't. I'm a wretched man. But Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's the good news. I don't have to to live in all that junk of Romans 7. Yes, I struggle. Yes, I confess sin. I'm so glad you had a time of confession here this morning. We don't do that enough in worship. We need to be remembered that we stand before a holy God, just like Isaiah said, I'm undone because of it. We need to recognize that our sin separates us from God, but because of the good news of Jesus, we can restore that relationship through him. There's no condemnation, but there's all sorts of condemnation for those who aren't in Christ Jesus. So I pray that today would be the day for someone, even here this morning, to say, yes, I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm tired of trying to just be a good person. I'm tired of trying to pick myself up by myself, by my bootstraps. I need to follow Jesus, and he will change everything. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I pray, I pray that this morning. I I just know there's someone here today that is either investigating the claims of Christ, I mean, they wouldn't be here otherwise, or, or trying to give proof to why they don't need to follow Jesus. God, you're it. You have never had a plan B. Jesus was always your plan A. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change hearts today. All we have to do, uh, your Bible says, is is, uh, confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is who he says he is and we will be saved. It's not some magic formula. It's just saying, God, I don't want to be the master of my life anymore. Jesus, I want you to be the master of my life. I can't do it. I know I'm sinful. I know that I need you. God, we're going we're gonna to be celebrating communion, I think, here in a minute, and it's just a reminder again of what you did for us so that we might come to you. God, if... If, I pray that you would do that in someone's life here this morning. And for the rest of us who know and love you, I pray that it would make a difference. I pray that it would make a difference in our speech and in our actions. I pray that as we go to the restaurants after church today, that our server would say, man, what in the world has happened to you? You, you just look different. And we could say, we just met with Jesus. 
I'd love to take you with me. Let me tell you about them. God, I pray that that number of 483,000 people would shrink in this county because of West Hills Church. That they would be on fire for the mission that you've given to them. To see men and women and boys and girls transformed with the good news of Jesus. Would you do that to us, Holy Spirit? That we might look more like Jesus. He's the author of our faith and he every day perfects our faith. For your glory, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.